Hello, dear friends. We are sincerely happy to greet you again. Today we're going to talk to the esteemed Igor Mikhailovich Danilo. Greetings. Igor Mikhailovich, the last video where we discussed primary and secondary consciousness and the development of personality evoked a tremendous resonance among our viewers and actually revived and restored kind of an interest in studying oneself, studying one's consciousnesses and observing how they draw attention to their side during the day. But most importantly, the video is a wonderful stimulus to develop as personality, to gain true freedom and to get away from the power of those demons. Because every person, when he observes himself and the work of his consciousness, he understands that demons are not some made-up mythical creatures, but demons really exist, and those demons are primary and secondary consciousness in a human. And you gave an excellent answer to the question, what is better, the dominance of primary consciousness in a human or the dominance of secondary consciousness in a human? You said that the best is the dominance of personality, not demons, because when personality predominates in a human, those imps can become wonderful helpers for personality, and then this correlation between primary and secondary consciousness in a human becomes balanced. There are a lot of clarifying questions concerning in the work in oneself and the subtleties of which manifestations are the manifestations of primary consciousness and which ones are of secondary consciousness. Here's the first question. What causes the dominance of either primary or secondary consciousness in a human? Is this some kind of an inborn feature or actually an acquired one? Actually, that's a good question. I'll put it as follows. A person's character is embedded right away So, a person grows up, and he grows up with a certain character. Naturally, there is a dominance of either primary or secondary consciousness. Well, let's say, as soon as consciousness appears in a person, one of the two immediately begins to dominate, either the primary or the secondary consciousness. But taking into account that a child is little, Primary consciousness develops most often if it is also nourished, and all the more if, let's say, this primary consciousness, owing to mirror neurons, absorbs that very power which later on enables it to dominate secondary consciousness, then the person remains with primary consciousness for the rest of his life. In other words, let me explain this a little bit broader. For example, In a family, primary consciousness predominates in people, that is, I, for me, egoism, and concern about simple, everyday matters, to eat, to drink, to have a roof over their head, and that's it. Naturally, a child, growing up in such an environment and already being slightly an egoist, who will he become when he grows up? It is clear that A person with a dominance of primary consciousness. Of course. And if a child, let's suppose, well, as a rule, all kids are born with a dominance of primary consciousness, it develops faster. Secondary consciousness begins to develop intensively a little bit later. So naturally, if the family, the environment is dominated by secondary consciousness, that is, when parents care more about all of humanity, engage in science or are busy, with volunteering, when they spend their own lives for the benefit of people, the child also absorbs that by means of mirror neurons. 
And naturally, there remains less egoism, I would even say egocentrism, in the child himself. He also begins to think more like his parents do, and his secondary consciousness develops more. In the same way, if parents really engage in science and discuss a lot of things at home, it also helps the child for his secondary consciousness to be developed. The question is different, let's say, how the dominance of primary or secondary consciousness affects spiritual development. My friends, if a child has slightly matured, so to say, and suddenly started feeling a longing for the spiritual world, what will hinder him more, secondary or primary consciousness? What do you think? Let's say I would rather not answer directly, but ask a question that has become ripe for our viewers right now. As usual, right, friends? Tatiana always answers with a question. It just regards this topic. We were asked a question that you are now talking about. Does a developed primary consciousness, predominating in a person, indicate that it will be easier for him on the spiritual path? I will now explain why. You once said that in order to disconnect from secondary consciousness, which prevents a person from immersing into feelings, it is necessary to shift this focus onto primary consciousness by performing, for example, autogenic training. Thus, when a person performs autogenic training, this balance shifts towards primary consciousness. So the following question arises. If a person lives during the day with a dominance of primary consciousness, if he is a narcissist, an egoist, a hedonist, does this mean that it will be easier for him on the spiritual path, and namely, it will be easier for him to perform meditations and spiritual practices? I'll put it this way. It will be less enjoyable to be around such a person compared to a person who has a developed secondary consciousness. Why? There's always a problem with egoists. They do not notice and do not appreciate anyone except themselves, right? However, the spiritual aspect is not affected by either. The only point is that when a person's secondary consciousness is inflated and he is manipulated by it, it is clear that secondary consciousness is much smarter, more cunning and stronger than primary consciousness. And in this case, personality has fewer chances. So in order to weaken, not to strengthen primary consciousness, but to weaken secondary consciousness, we engage primary consciousness, you see? In other words, for a certain period of time, we direct the power of our attention more to primary consciousness. I mean, we kind of balance these forces, and then they are not such a significant hindrance at the first steps of spiritual development. Do you know what other question I have? Friends, I will still ask Tatiana a question. For example, a person develops spiritually, okay? So he has developed. Let's say, what will be a greater hindrance to him? The primary or the secondary consciousness? I think the secondary one, because when personality develops spiritually, there is more power, so right. naturally secondary consciousness is stronger too. That was the first part of the question. The second part, a person has developed. What will hinder him more, the primary or the secondary one? When a person has already… Already spiritually? Yes, he has evolved spiritually, so to speak. Certainly, if secondary consciousness is already displaced beyond the energy structure, then of course the flesh will be probably burdensome for him. And not only the secondary, but the primary one is also displaced. That is, consciousness is consciousness. The flesh burdens him. That's right, primary consciousness. You see, Tatiana answered correctly. We already have a dialogue. 
We already move away from me answering questions and Tatiana asking them. It's already more pleasant, right? So, friends, what… Igor Mikhailovich, will you be asking me questions from now on? Yes, I just wanted to ask. Friends, what questions should I ask Tatiana next? I think we're all much more interested in hearing you, Igor Mikhailovich. Well, I disagree. I'm interested in listening to you, Tatiana. And friends will confirm it's interesting for them too. Look, what good and right conclusions you've come to. But it's all thanks to you. What do I have to do with that? It's your conclusions. Joking is joking. But if we approach this seriously, in actual fact, there should be a balance, friends. Either primary or secondary consciousness, if it dominates, it hinders. It is personality that should be developed, and that's what one should strive for. And to answer that question, I'll return to the question about autogenic training. Autogenic training, in the classical form, by Schultz, can be harmful as well. It is important and necessary, in its essence and in its basis. These are the first practices when you understand how to manage consciousness, when you learn to control secondary consciousness, and to control the body by means of primary consciousness. That is, autogenic training gives you significant capabilities, but thanks to the East, Schultz actually introduced it, but he took away the philosophy, the subtleties and the understanding of the very process of this training, and he simply called it autogenic training. Yes, that is right, everything is good. But he also added there, well, As always, you know, a spoonful of tar in a barrel of honey, which is the work with your psyche, programming the desirable elements that you want to strengthen in yourself, so to say, right? Work with such affirmations. Of course, this is psychological work with affirmations. As he describes, it is work with subconsciousness, and so on. But what are the consequences of such affirmations? You once told us about Schultz's follower, Hannes Lindemann, who, in order to popularize this autogenic training, crossed the Atlantic Ocean in a boat and… He proved that by giving himself an affirmation that he had to sail, that he would survive, that he was strong. He really crossed it on his own, and thanks to autogenic training, he actually survived, right? Why? Because in the ocean, in rough weather, while just being in the boat, the boat turned over and all that, but this thought in him, which he gave himself by means of autogenic training, to survive, to reach the shore, it helped him. It's like a reflex, I mean, But if we… I'll emphasize this once again, friends, if we start using autogenic training on our spiritual path exactly as programming of our subconsciousness, then, friends, we will not get anywhere. We will teach our subconsciousness, or secondary consciousness, to put it more correctly. We will teach it to manipulate us as personality, to give us pseudo-effects, and no one will go anywhere, and nothing will happen. I will put it that way. By autogenic training, do you mean I follow the spiritual path? Absolutely right. It's easy for me to cope with this and that, precisely these kinds of affirmations? You know, quite often, let's put it so, we also hear other versions in people's heads. When a person followed the spiritual path, everything was good, everything was fine. He stumbled once, he stumbled twice. Consciousness tends to distract. And the person realizes that he loses inner connection. 
And that's where autogenic training comes to help. It is secondary consciousness that suggests to him, as it is developed smart and cunning, it says you should practice autogenic training, suggest yourself that you stand firmly on the spiritual path, that you constantly feel and maintain the connection with the spiritual world. And instead of maintaining this connection because… Guys, let me explain a little bit now. So, instead of working on oneself, the person shifts his responsibility onto a demon. In your opinion, will the person feel? No, he will not. And his spiritual path, so to say, is replaced with an illusion. Subsequently, as soon as he has done that, he is easily manipulated by consciousness. It elevates him, so to speak, to the scholars of the spiritual world, and that's it. And he's already an expert, he's already a specialist, yet he is empty inside, even without a bottom. But why does this happen? Because as soon as a person starts suggesting to himself that he feels and constantly maintains this contact, it occurs repeatedly and for a long time. In this case, his secondary consciousness becomes active and the work of personality is replaced. And instead of real feelings, he simply has false hope and pseudo-sensations. In what sense? First of all, the production of endorphins. When we perform spiritual practice, friends, Tatiana and I already discussed this, it's natural that after the practice, such an elevated mood, euphoria. cheerfulness, a slight euphoria appears. All this is a result of production of endogenous opiates by our body. That's normal. But when those opiates start working in a person before the practice, and the person already immerses, I mean, when the time of practice comes, our mechanism gets activated, and our body starts releasing the hormones of joy, so to say. And already with joy we sit down to do the practice. Just look. Without even coming into contact, so to say. Yes, but, in fact, if a person is spiritually evolved, he craves for this practice. That's natural. He is cramped in this world. It is hard for him in this world. And this pseudo-reality of ours presses very hard. A person rests in the practice, he lives in it. And naturally, he waits for it like a breath of air. When a person dives in, strongly holding his breath, he dives deep. Then afterwards, he swims slowly, tries to stir and move slowly. He saves oxygen. But at the same time, he wishes to rapidly surface in order to take a deep breath. The same is in this world, when a person reaches a certain spiritual development, even if he is not liberated yet, but has already become a certain part of the spiritual world, he aspires for it in order to take this breath that is to be in practice, to be at home, to communicate with his near and dear ones, speaking our language. In other words, to enjoy this life and to actually feel what life is, what true freedom is, and to feel who he is in reality. However, when he plunges back, or rather returns to this world, from reality, from that genuine reality, he feels pressure from all sides, he feels that all this is not his. And sometimes it's hard for a person to even bring himself back into this body, so to say, which is certainly stressful for the body itself too. Why? Because 
At this time, a humanist personality begins to generate more energy. Of course, this affects even the physical level. Again, that very entropy comes into play, so even the person's temperature may really increase. Why? Because this energy is processed by his body, and the body experiences stress at this point. Thus, in response to this stress, to this release of energy, which, as I'm saying, our body even processes into heat energy, is like a trauma for it, a trauma for our consciousness. Why? Because consciousness is very afraid of that power which our Personality comes into contact with, but at the same time, it eagerly hunts, shall we say, for its lower fraction, for that very real, for our consciousness, it is fodder, it is the most valuable energy. But when it encounters a purer fraction, it's like an acid for it. Therefore, this reaction is natural. The body produces hormones of joy as if in response to stress, to a trauma. Yet what does our consciousness do when it reduces a person to pseudo-results? First of all, it constantly controls his practice. And secondly, as we already said, it releases hormones, yes. hormones. It affects through chemical substances. Before practice, it's not that joy and that aspiration, but a false presentation, a false sensation. Why? Consciousness sort of switches its joy to Personality and says that everything is good and wonderful. And very importantly, it lulls Personality. So you see, it's a trivial autogenic training. As for the improperly performed autogenic training, or when another part is already taken, the work with your subconsciousness, the use of this work with your subconsciousness, with those mindsets on the spiritual path can lead you literally to hell, friends. That is, it can replace life with death. It is sad, but it's true. These are frequent cases, and they are noticeable, friends, unfortunately. You shouldn't play around, and you shouldn't shift responsibility even onto your consciousness and onto your body for your spiritual salvation, you see? Well, this is beneficial to consciousness. That's why it often urges people to do that. Autogenic training is like an initial practice on the spiritual path. My hand is cold, then heavy. I fall asleep, rest, calm down, and that's it. But there shouldn't be any codes, programming or mindsets. There has to be freedom of Personality and, let's say, Personality's understanding of the entire bustle of this world. That's when everything falls into place, friends. And then it's easy and simple to understand what is good and what is bad. But you should strive for that to put it simply. I also remember you sharing that, yes, perhaps an active primary consciousness will enable a person to properly perform autogenic training, but that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that he will perfectly perform meditation or spiritual practice later on. Well, you see, many people mix it. Again, there are mistakes on the spiritual path when they start mixing autogenic training with meditative practices or begin to use autogenic training when doing meditative practices. The result is exactly the same again. I mean, we strengthen the enemy ourselves. It's the same as if you would approach the enemy and give him a stick to beat you, you see? These are additional tools against yourselves. 
You should distinguish. Also, this aspiration for an ideal, for perfection, prevents many people from taking the next step. People wrote to us that they've been practicing autogenic training for several years already, and they ask a question, how will we know when we can proceed to the next stage, to the next level, that now we have well mastered autogenic training and we can already proceed to be forming meditation or spiritual practice? Yet I have a question for such people. Tatiana, I have a question for such people. What does it mean, well-mastered autogenic training or practice? What is meant by well-mastered? The answer is simple, if your body obeys your commands, if by means of primary consciousness, let's say, in autogenic training you can calm secondary consciousness, or by using secondary consciousness you can curb primary consciousness, that's exactly mastering. In other words, if you try a meditative practice, and attain quite a good effect from meditative practice, that's it, you can move on. The only thing is that there are certainly people who cannot hold their attention, even for a minute. It is clear that thoughts creep in, but the point is that when you do autogenic training and decrease, I would say, the intensity of the pressure of secondary consciousness, on the primary one, there's already a plus. When you give yourself a command, for example, my hand is heavy or my hand is warm, and you really feel this physically, my friend, it means everything works, everything functions. This is exactly what is normal, otherwise you can spend your whole life practicing and waiting. You see, my friends, I'll put it simply, unfortunately, as of today, all of us, have a mindset the same as in autogenic training, we mentioned this, which is falsely embedded deep in our subcortex. I mean, we believe so much in it subconsciously that we should sit and God will come to us and save us. This work of priesthood for 6,000 years, under the guidance of Shaitan, has led us to the point that from our territory, from our beloved planet, there is practically no inflow and replenishment to the spiritual world. You see, that's why the Prophets came here. Yes, when they came, there were brief outbursts, but they were followed by an absolute standstill. That's the trouble. With very rare exceptions, if you trace the history of Christianity, you can count on your fingers how many people came into the spiritual world over 2,000 years. This is true. And how many people became liberated at the time of Jesus Christ and during the first decades, let's say, even hundreds of years, during several hundred years. After Jesus, there was a mass of people, while afterwards there was a standstill and there became less and less of them. Instead, the priesthood became stronger, and the stronger it became, the further away we moved away from God. You see how simple everything is? Why? Because we shifted responsibility onto others, we forgot about the essence, we mixed the unmixable, and we shifted inner work to outer actions. The same may be said about Islam. As long as the Prophet was alive, he said, many on the path of Islam, the path of salvation, of spiritual salvation, and many people followed him. And in fact, after him, 
During a short period of time, very many people were worthy to be equal among equals, whereas afterwards, due to certain events, there became less and less of them, and in the same way as in Christianity, it was reduced almost to zero. That's true, after all. This is sad, friends, really sad. Yes, I understand. People introduced their changes to the knowledge, brought their desires to religion, established religion itself. All this is understandable. But that's not the issue. The issue is that if we actually take the Qur'an in our hands, one real ayat from the Prophet himself is enough for us. If we love Allah and strive for Him, it is more than enough for us to come to Him. But when we shift responsibility onto someone else, when we stand and wait for Allah to come to us, friends, He will come only when we go to Him. We must go. Do you understand? That's the point. We must do, we must strive. Otherwise, we will remain where we are. It is shaitan that immobilizes us. That's the point. Moreover, there is no and there cannot be. In fact, I will say it again, there is no and there cannot be anyone between Allah and a Muslim, between the Lord God and a Christian. God is one, no matter what we call Him, and anyone who loves Him and strives for Him must go to Him, then He will come. But if we put any person above God, it doesn't matter who, if we listen to and rely on someone else more than God, friends, we won't come anywhere. That's the truth. There is Jesus Christ in Christianity, there is the last and the best of people, the Prophet Muhammad in Islam. And that's all. We must listen to them in order to come to God. There are no others and there cannot be any. As for everything else, you know, preaching, stories, interpretations, yes, that's how traditions have developed, and it has gotten to the point where a Muslim has no right to study the Qur'an. He has to wait for someone to explain it to him. While it is clearly written in the Qur'an, and the Prophet himself mentioned that Allah said, we have made the Qur'an unambiguous and absolutely clear, so that humans can understand it. So, does it turn out that Allah is a liar? Or did the Prophet make a mistake by giving such a complex Qur'an that you need 20 people to interpret it and tell you that a mass of scholars is needed to study it? A simple question. You see how simple everything is? How can you study, let's say, the spiritual path, precisely someone else's spiritual path, not your own, and tell a person how he should go? You can't tell him where to go, you can share your own experience. But it's unrealistic to surmount it instead of someone else, whereas we have people who are trying sort of to follow the path instead of us but they immobilize us. This is the trouble of modern times. And because of this, we have reached a point where we have a Cerberus walking in our streets, 
and we have become those whom the best of people, the Prophet Muhammad, spoke about. The last people, the last generation, or the first one. It all depends on us, whether we will stand and wait, or whether we will actually get up, walk towards God, and gain a new and better world. We can create it, even here, and much better than the world we have nowadays, many times better. A world filled with honor, justice, and most importantly, with love, not with hatred and evil as it is nowadays. It all depends on us, on each of us, friends. Excuse me, I've digressed from the subject a little bit. This is very relevant indeed, because we really want to create a world that the prophets dreamed of, a world of friendship, a world of mutual help, a world of justice. It would be very desirable if after our video the whole period would be marked as a period of people's action, a period of unity, action, and the triumph of verity, the triumph of real truth in this world. It would be desirable, you see, and… Igor Mikhailovich, but who is afraid of this newness in us? I will now voice just a few points. Many of our participants are worried that they're afraid of changing something. Even being perfectly aware of the fact that they live in dangerous regions, seismically dangerous regions, for example, they wake up every day in panic and worry about their near and dear ones, their children. But they don't change anything even at such a household level. Yes, they can be active participants, they can actively release TikTok videos, participate in conferences, but this panic doesn't let them go. And it seems to them that it makes no sense to change their place of residence, let's say. Who in us is slowing us down this way? Which of the consciousnesses? The primary one. The primary one. Friends, it is all due to primary consciousness. And that's a misfortune, of course. Just look, secondary consciousness always strives for creativity, for newness, for changes, for some alterations. It is capable of understanding this world, so to say, of perceiving it in the earthly sense, not in the spiritual sense, friends. And precisely secondary consciousness pushes us to, for instance, we live in one place, it pushes us, no, move there, look there, you see? Whereas if primary consciousness dominates, it simply binds us to the place. And sometimes it binds us so much that when the world is falling apart, when, excuse me, there is a fire around, when earthquakes happen, but a person… a person is afraid to leave his home, or when there is a war, when neighbors are destroyed, but a person is waiting, hoping that a missile will not land on his house. And this, I would say, pathological action of primary consciousness, is often the reason for many people's death. After all, just look at what is going on nowadays. Calamity is spreading all over the world now. It's really everywhere. There are floods and everything else in the world, right? The Cerberus is on the loose. But people are scared, even being in the very center of events and realizing that there will be problems. They are scared to leave their house. Why? They have no prospect. Well, it is secondary consciousness that gives a prospect. You see, it is primary consciousness that immobilizes people. And this is scary. While in reality, of course, we've started talking about climate and… Yes, there are serious problems, and you see, friends, what is going on already. 
There are no wars already, as people say. You see, if before, just a couple of years ago, people still had hope that it was all trivial warming, which would soon pass, and so forth. The events that are taking place now, I'm just saying, only idiots, they cause doubts, may have hoped that everything will resolve by itself. And indeed, the prophecies come true. They come true before our eyes. This is scary, it's unpleasant. But there is a reason for that. And the worst part, I would say, is what awaits us in the near future. Let's take even that very Yellowstone, okay? Well, that's a problem, after all. It causes a great concern among people. No, Tatiana, it doesn't cause it yet. But soon, friends, it will cause it. Moreover, it will cause serious concerns. Well, you know, there is a lack of understanding among that very scientific world as to what is actually happening. And that's a serious problem indeed. Why? Because, yes, the work that our friends, volunteers, are doing right now is huge, and the truth that was voiced at the forum has certainly shocked many people. Their primary consciousness doesn't want to accept this information, but they can neither verify nor refute it. Although, again, it's impossible to refute what was voiced at the forum, friends. Why? Because the Cerberus confirms it on a daily basis, unfortunately. To our really great regret, everything that was voiced is true. And we see confirmations of this truth every day. As for what was promised and told to us, what gave us hope that everything would change or that we would reduce emissions, start protecting the environment and everything would improve, Unfortunately, this has proven to be untrue. And there are simple, trivial explanations to that. Speaking in simple terms, people should have a simple understanding of why this is happening. I'll put it simply, as a result of the increase in internal energy in the core of our planet, which takes place due to external factors, friends, the dissipation of this energy in the system of our planet's internal processes is also increasing, just to make it clear. This in turn naturally causes an increase in entropy in the system itself. Entropy, my friends, is when energy is converted into heat. In other words, there occurs processing of this energy, this very extra energy that has come from an external source into our core and has caused destabilization of the core. So this energy gets into the medium around the core itself. This medium begins to heat up, which, to a large extent, leads to spasmodic heating of that very magma. This process will only increase, and we can clearly see it now. I'll put it simply, a specific example of this is the activation of many volcanoes. In the last month and a half, a number of earthquakes, including that in Northern California, the one that happened recently, and also what we currently see, on the one hand, we have literally 
heavy snowfalls and severe frosts, while on the other hand there are extreme floods in places where they have never occurred before, and in such numbers that it is frightening. So, understanding the mechanism itself, you begin to understand the essence of the process as well, so to say, and understanding comes of what awaits us. You see, it's bad that up until today people haven't grasped such banal, simple things as one plus one and have been hoping for some kind of a miracle and that everything will pass by itself, everything will balance out. It won't balance out, friends. I'll say even more, starting from the nearest time and in the years to come, the famous Yellowstone caldera will keep not only Americans, but the entire sensible world in a state of fear. The thing is that the magma conduits to this caldera are currently manifesting unprecedented activity. The temperature of magma in them is increasing rapidly right now. Is this really not seen? A simple question. Why do we know about this while others are silent? After all, what does it mean when magma conduits heat up? Well, just to make it clear, those are, let's say, kind of fissures through which magma can move. So they heat up. And what happens when they heat up, friends? Expansion. Expansion. That means what? Magma is coming up under the caldera in larger and larger quantities. Meanwhile, we know that there's a sizable bubble of this magma under the caldera, and its temperature is increasing. Can this not be seen? It is seen. Do they not know it? They know. They know, but keep silent. That's the trouble, friends. That somewhere we try to hide information, or we keep silent. But we are actually human beings, friends. This is serious information. What may happen to the caldera at any minute? Well, it is people's lives, the lives of not even millions, but billions of people. After all, let's say the activation of Yellowstone will affect the entire humanity, not just America. And there is no guarantee that this kind of a bridge won't cause a synchronization. I, however, think it will. But this is merely my personal opinion. Yet, you know, there is such a concept that is called mathematics. If we apply this science to the processes that are going on today in our planet's core, we will see that everything is happening literally by the same mathematical code. If the Yellowstone caldera bursts, this will not weaken the processes going on inside the planet, but on the contrary, it will cause a chain reaction of those. Why? Because it would further destabilize our core, friends. Imagine a release of a huge amount of magma when there is an unstable core that is constantly being accelerated by an external factor, so to say. Here the restraining factor is precisely that very magma. It holds everything back. It's a liquid, but rather thick and viscous substance. And here some of it comes out. What happens then? A rarefaction, right? 
Hence, the instability increases. And what will a sharp increase in instability of the core lead to? You understand for yourselves. I'm certainly not saying that the caldera will explode tomorrow morning. But do you know what the most terrible thing is? That no one will give you a guarantee that it will not explode by tomorrow night. Although, to be honest, I personally think that Yellowstone will not activate in the next few years at least. But I am quite sure it will make everyone pretty nervous. Why? Because it will hardly be possible to conceal what will happen in the near future. We will see a mass of earthquakes, not only small ones, but also more severe ones. Although one would think a serious earthquake which may occur, well, no date. In that very China, can it affect the caldera? It would seem it cannot, right? Meanwhile, my friends, this absolutely fits our mathematical model. And what does this have to do with China, it would seem? It would seem it has nothing to do with it, it is far away, not there. Yes, if we look at the planet from above, it doesn't fit. But if we look at our planet in a cross-sectional view, where China is and where the caldera is, and what would happen when a big earthquake occurs, I'm not saying a very strong one, no, friends, within the magnitude of seven. And this is more than enough, depending on where it happens, in South China or North China. So, on the one hand, it will be a local disaster, while on the other hand, it will be a planetary disaster. If it happens within the next four or five months, well, four months is the worst case. In month five, it is less scary. Six months from today, it won't be scary anymore. But in month eight, God forbid, look how easily everything changes. Why? Because this is math. And we understand how the core is shifting, where the pressure rises, how it presses on the plates, and what happens at the time when a seemingly insignificant earthquake occurs, not even at a very great depth, somewhere far from the caldera. But it causes a response which affects. And here's the most interesting thing, not so much the magma, but through the place it affects that very bubble, you see, which is under Yellowstone. An internal pressure builds up in it, moreover, it arises abruptly, which can actually trigger the eruption of the caldera. I'm saying it again, along the conduits where magma is flowing, the process is already underway, and it is very rapid. This overlapping can actually cause a disaster of a global scale. And I should note that this very mathematical model also suggests with a high percentage of probability, a sharp acceleration of all processes, that which I just talked about. Well, to put it simply, we have studied the character and habits of the Cerberus quite well. Yes, we know them by now, but no one cancelled the element of aggression, friends. At any moment, depending on certain conditions, the Cerberus can simply go violent 
and we certainly wouldn't want that. But today, a lot depends on you and us, and on every citizen of this planet. Tatiana, it just came to my mind that we sort of started with primary consciousness, but ended up with the Cerberus. You know, this vividly explains how difficult it will be in the future for people with the activation of primary consciousness, those who hear the truth, those who understand what you're talking about, those who hear the verity. They're basically responsible for those little children in whom this primary consciousness predominates, because as adults, they should be the ones who will initiate these changes in construction of the creative society that will make it possible to save the lives of all of us. You are right. I'll simplify that. I'll put it this way. It's time to grow up, friends. For all of us to grow up. The future depends on us. I understand that many people do not want to hear this. I understand, and I'll even say more, as of today, in connection with the serious information that was voiced at the forum, Some people, even those very agencies, began to take it seriously and even began to quietly inquire with those who were at the forum to ask them questions. But the bad thing is that it's done not for the purpose of understanding, but for the purpose of sort of asking them not to talk about it and not to scare people. And this is done by those who should have been the first to support it, study it, and do everything in their power so that we as humanity could take the Cerberus on a short leash and a tight collar and actually put it on a limited diet. Otherwise, friends, the freedom of the Cerberus will be our end. And again, everything depends on us, on each of us, regardless of our profession or place of work, we must not forget that we are human beings, and we must not forget that we have near and dear people whom we love, and for their sake, and for the sake of ourselves, and even for the sake of those, as Tatiana said, little children, who, being adults, deny what is obvious and do not understand simple things, even for their sake, we must grow up. And actually, save this world. It is beautiful, and there's a lot of good in it. And we shouldn't let fear stop us. Of course. You're right. So, friends, let's not rely on anyone, not even on Santa Claus, but let's rely on ourselves. Right? Let's not be afraid, and let's not listen to either primary or secondary consciousness. Let us act from personality. Who is always right? and who always strives for the good. Our personality always strives for home. But for God's world. So, friends, let's live and take care of each other and take care of our planet. I am sorry. It's not quite cheerful information before holidays. Yet, What can we say? It's good when it's honest. Right. At least it is honest. So, let's just love each other. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, friends. Peace be with you.